Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. How have race and injustice shaped the American farming landscape? Climate One conversations feature all aspects of the climate emergency, the individual and the systemic, the exciting and the scary. I'm Greg Dalton. African Americans have lost around 11 million acres of land to fraud, deceit, and outright theft. Now many of those properties are threatened by sea level rise and coastal erosion. By looking at coastlines, you really begin to see how the struggle for racial justice and for environmental sustainability are fundamentally linked. That's Andrew Carl, professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Virginia and author of The Land Was Ours, How Black Beaches Became White Wealth in the Coastal South. He'll join us later on today's show. First, separating farming from bigger forces in our industrial economy. The food system is not based on feeding each other. It's based on producing a product that transports well, that doesn't spoil, that can be turned into things other than food. Chris Newman is co-founder of Sylvan Aqua Farms in Virginia. The son of a Black mother and Native American father, Newman is on a mission to bring Indigenous knowledge and people of color back into the practice of growing food. I'm pretty much like a young Black woman experiment for agriculture to see how far it can go. <laughs> Amber Tam is a farmer and horticulturist based in New York City. Her path toward working with soil began with losing her mother and father at the age of 18. So I was in College of the Atlantic for maybe four to six months after graduating high school. And that was the first time I left New York City. Um, also the first time I left my parents. Um, and then I got a phone call that my father had murdered my mom. And from that point forward, I mean, I had two younger siblings that needed to be tended to. Um, and a funeral to plan, and a bunch of things regarding like property and taxes and nothing that I understood because in school I was being reared to have a perfect SAT score and like go to a good college only to be met with the realities of adulthood. So I was left needing income, shelter, and food. And my only two options were working on a cruise ship or farming. And I chose farming because I already had had an affinity for soil. Um, and I wanted to go to Peace Corps after college, but I figured now was my time. And upon arriving to my first farm, that's when my ethos developed of, because I put my mom's body in the earth, because she returned to where she belonged, that now in working with the earth, I'm working with my mom and not only my mom, but like my mom's mom and so on and so forth. Chris Newman, why did you leave your job as a software engineer to decide to work the land? Yeah, um, I was in tech and had gotten to kind of the pinnacle of that career path and realized I hated it. Um, you know, I kind of got to the top of the mountain. I'm like, this, this is it. Um, and then there was kind of a stress-related, almost cancer scare. I mean, it was a cancer scare that uh, that was finally the kick in the butt I needed to say, okay, do with your life what you want to do with your life now and don't wait to retire. And what I'd wanted to do initially when I retired and was a stately gentleman with a nice fortune was to start a, uh, not exactly a hobby farm, but a farm that focused on um indigenous agriculture, uh, specifically around bison, uh, land-raised varieties of corn, old varieties of corn. I happen to just know a lot of seed keepers. Um, so that had been the plan. And because of stress and, and the health consequences thereof, um, we accelerated uh, our farming plans by 40-ish years or so. 
And how did your family lineage shape your journey? <laughs> Ironically enough, my family lineage uh, pushed me hard away from farming. Um, I still remember I told my uh, my hundred year old grandmother who uh, you know on the on the black side of my family. My my background is Choptacopa Scataway, um, indigenous on my father's side and African American on my mother's side. Um, my mom's side came from farmers in the Virginia Tidewater. I'm down in Suffolk, Norfolk, that area. Um, I told my grandmother I was farming. She she looked at me for like a whole minute, um, <laughs> and grandma doesn't really look at people like that but when she looks at you that long it's like oh uh uh oh and uh she said "Mm, like to kept your day job and that's all she ever said about it um like it's it's a big thing where in the consciousness of, of black people the arc of progress goes away from the farm away from the plantation away from the soil um there's a lot of trauma around that and a lot of impetus to not be involved with the soil and the same uh, to an extent on the indigenous side when it comes to farming as opposed to what indigenous people usually regard as as protecting land and protecting water, which are often at odds. Um, farming, the idea of having a piece of land that you regard as private property is, is often considered anathema to indigenous ideals about what land is and how it is to be steward. Um, so my family legacy was very much like you should go back into software because <laughs> we worked real hard not to be poor and look what you're doing. <laughs> Interesting. Um, Amber, you recently visited the Kumie Nation near San Diego. It was your first time on a reservation. How did that inform your journey connecting with the land as a black farmer in Brooklyn? This is such a crazy, vital question because I think as a black woman who is a descendant of Cherokee slaves, which is not spoken about, and the Cherokee Nation not giving me my tribal card because they still have semi-racist politics pertaining to who's Cherokee and who's not. Um, I definitely had an identity crisis and closed myself down to claiming any indigenous blood, but then I also had a lot of anger that bubbled up because there's a lot of unspoken tension between Black and indigenous people, um, at least here in my realm that is like New York City. And so when I went to that reservation, one, I thought it was interesting that I was, I had to go all the way to West Coast to be initiated into a reservation and be on sacred lands. But aside from that initiating, guiding me to other indigenous communities, I really got to sit with White Sage for the first time in in a living format. And that definitely changed my life. I, I definitely got lots of downloads from White Sage. And I literally sat in front of one White Sage plant for many hours, just communing with it. I'd like to hear about your farms. Chris Newman, describe your farm. What are you harvesting this year? Or what do you, what do you describe your ranch and farm for us? Yeah. So this year we're doing forest fed pork. We're doing pastured poultry, uh, pastured eggs. But next year, we're really looking forward to just really blowing up um, what we're going to be harvesting. In addition to the products of regenerative agriculture, we're going to be doing a lot more um, indigenous foodways, uh, focusing both on intensive indigenous agriculture. So the stuff everybody's heard of, Three Sisters, um, wild rice cultivation um, in, in this area, J-chokes, Jerusalem artichokes, um, acorn flour, uh, cattail flour, cattail foods. And really focusing on on those kind of wild and semi-wild foods, making those available to communities so that people who suffer under food apartheid, which include indigenous communities and the African-American communities where I come from, have access to nutritious food without it you know, breaking their bank. Um, and then on the flip side, continuing to do uh, what, what we've always done uh, for the last, God, it's been seven, eight years already, um, more chicken, more beef, more pork, um, more eggs. Um, we're on a lot of land. We don't own land where we are. We're on about 1,900 acres of a former plantation, um, which is always wild. Um, but yeah, that's that's where we're at. And when you say shared ownership, are you you're creating some kind of collective cooperative where people will will have an ownership stake? You said you don't own own the land, but are you? What's the path to ownership? 
Yeah, that's a that's a complicated one. Um, so what we want to do is allow people to come and inform their own uh, worker-owned collectives where they farm the land and have access to two critical things, uh, one being a land base through a land trust and the other being a set of shared services um, that are kind of the business aspect of farming that tends to knock a lot of young, new, and especially uh, farmers of color down. Um, stuff like accounting, insurance, markets, branding, publicity, compliance, regulatory, you know, the stuff that nobody wants to do <laughs> when they decide to go back to the land, um, especially for us, which tends to be a healing journey. Um, it was for Amber and it was for me as well these business aspects of it where we have to interface um, food production, which for which for indigenous people has always been about kinship economics and about community and feeding people, runs kind of into our present reality of capitalism and markets. And what we really want to do is soften that landing for people that are coming back to the landscape so that they can do what they need to do on the ground and have people like me who were privileged enough to go to college and have a good job and save a bunch of money and you know, came from the kinds of families that were fortunate enough to put me in the position that I'm in, let us kind of absorb that shell of end-stage capitalism and uh, and let everybody else do what they need to do in the ground. Hear that. Um, Amber, describe your farm in New York City. My farm doesn't exist in New York City, which is why Chris is trying <laughs> to recruit me. But um, my vision for Seneca Village is, one, to walk with the Seneca nation of Iroquois and the Lenape people into reclaiming that land. Uh, my vision for Central Park essentially is for Central Park to release that land to the people. Why don't you explain what Seneca Village was? And because I think people don't really understand the story of what Central Park was before it was Central Park. Sure. So specifically by the Great Lawn, uh, right off of 85th Street and Central Park West, if you enter that part of Central Park, you'll immediately see plaques that say Seneca Village. And basically on those plaques is an explanation that once upon a time, a long time after Lenape and Iroquois were kicked off the land, that there were Black African-American folks who were very affluent who occupied that land and owned it. And by way of owning it, they were able to then give out other people opportunities to own land there because at that time you had to own land in order to vote. And so Harlem, which is where most affluent Blacks lived, was getting way too crowded. So there were some that moved down to 85th. The name Seneca Village actually comes from a priest and it was a, actually a derogatory term. It was in reference to the Seneca Iroquois um, and it was known to be a slur. And the village part came as like, oh, it's a brown wasteland for low whites. And that is verified by Central Park's researcher that that's why it's called Seneca Village. And so me as a native New Yorker and my family being here close to five generations in New York City, me wanting to reclaim those grounds is by way of just reclaiming it for the people. Um, and so that my vision for that land is specifically to walk with Iroquois and Lenape people because that is their land. First and secondly, it's to be able to give Native New Yorkers access to land that they feel comfortable in. I think a lot of people not from New York City don't know that Central Park is a realm in which, if you are from the hood and you are brown, you are not chilling in Central Park. It is not a de stressor or a safe place or a safe grounds by any means. I went to Central Park maybe two times growing up because it wasn't a place for people like me. And that's what I was told. And so, in reclaiming those grounds, it's important for those native brown New Yorkers to have a place and a say-so and a place to just be informed on how to grow food, diversify those soils, et cetera. Um, Amber, I heard you talk about some grief there when you talked about Seneca Village. You've also connected climate grief with your own personal grief, which you talked about losing your parents. So tell us about how you, you process climate grief, because we're talking about food production in the age of climate disruption. Well, climate grief was an umbrella term that I used when I was finally having my epiphany of how agriculture doesn't work. I think for two and a half years, I was on a migrant farm trail along with other immigrants, um, only I'm not an immigrant, which caused a lot of confusion. I was, I was basically in the middle of this like South American Caribbean realm, but only I was a Black American young woman. And so I think my 
intersection with agriculture is very different because I've been on the migrant trail. I've been paid like a migrant farmer. It's not an experience that is away from me. It is one that I lived in and it is horrendous. Having almost been raped, sexually assaulted, not being given certain opportunities because those things can happen really um, was the onset of the climate grief and really understanding women in agriculture in, in the not safe way was the onset of climate grief. But even on regenerative farms, I was having negative experiences and I couldn't understand how I just kept going from place to place to place to place. And along with like me being like, well, I'm healing from the trauma with my parents, but accumulating more trauma from each farm. That's when, that's like the birth of my climate grief. So I say that as an umbrella term to say like, everything that's going on pertaining to food and soil I feel it in my own body and through my own experiences because what is done to the earth has been done to me. It's a reflective matter. I think most women, cis-identifying people can say that when they see things done to the earth, they can reference so many times that that has been done to them. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about connecting personal trauma and climate grief. Coming up, more on the complicated history of food, farming, and people of color in America. I remember people getting their gardens ripped up by HUD because it wasn't a lawn. You know, you plant a garden, you try to feed yourself. No, screw you. They're going to rip up your freaking garden, turn it back to lawn because that's what the regs say. And you can take your food stamps over to the gas station and buy whatever. That's up next when Climate One continues. Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about race, land, and climate with two farmers, Amber Tam, a horticulturist based in New York City, and Chris Newman, co-founder of Sylvan Aqua Farms in Virginia. Newman may be on a mission to reinfuse agriculture with indigenous knowledge and sustainable practices, but he'd be the first to tell you he's not in the business of promoting a climate-friendly diet. If you believe science, my people have been in the Chesapeake Bay region for somewhere between 12 to 15,000 years. They're not exactly sure. It's not about diet. Um, diet has nothing to do with it. Like if you, if you look around this country, if you look around Turtle Island, every diet you can imagine was here. You had people that ate nothing but meat. You had people that were almost vegan and everything in between. Um, and yet, for the most part, um, they, they managed to organize societies and a way of relating to the natural world that did not extract um, from those places. Diet is, people love to think about a, of a climate diet because it's an easy thing that you can do to fix the problem right now. No, nobody really wants to do the hard work of realizing that this country was founded um, and, and really the, all of the dominant political systems and power systems in this entire hemisphere are based on extracting from this place, and it's never stopped. Um, only 34% of the calories that are produced in this country actually go into any food system. Uh, the rest of it go into biofuels, they go into bioplastics. The food system is not based on feeding each other, it's based on producing a product that transports well, that doesn't spoil, that can be turned into things other than food. Um, so, yeah, the, the idea that if you eat less meat, if you start eating Beyond Burger instead of the beef burger at Burger King, if you go vegan or if you only eat grass-fed meat, um, what we really need to do is is people like me, you know, I'm not rich, but compared to a lot of people, I have an awful lot of privilege as as somebody who has access to the amount of land I do, to the expertise I do, to the network of people that I do. It's really up to us to show consumers, which is, again, how we like boil down people's existence to, right? To show them what is possible, that there can be a different kind of not 
diet, but a way of producing food, of relating to the natural world, of of understanding our place in nature, beside nature, not separate and apart and above it. Um, and I think until we have that kind of revolution of the mind, consumerism is not going to solve this problem because consumerism is what got us here. Um, Amber Tam, I saw that you uh, posted on social media something from uh, Sustainable Brooklyn that said, quote, it's not enough just to change the system. We need to change ourselves. I'm interested in your thoughts on that because we'll have what Climate One tried to do about changing systems by changing ourselves. Yeah, I I mean that in the sense of I when I'm on Instagram, I'm really talking specifically to Black people from the hood because those are people who follow me. And so that is a touching component for them to say the change that needs to happen within themselves is one where they need to work on freeing up their mind to really return to a rural lifestyle. One that is all encompassing of who we are, who we are as a people culturally. And that's usually the turnoff because within the realm of agriculture, I feel that we are not talking about the cultural components. Mm. I feel like we're spending a lot of time talking about the physical components. And I recognize understanding how to run a business and the physicality of it. But when it comes down to soil, like I've said on Instagram a million times, talking about soil does not mean anything unless we're also going to talk about land access. And that will forever be my truth. So yes, I do think that there is an internal change that does need to be made. But what I know is once your hands are in the soil and once you're communing with Mama Earth and the ancestors and whatever soil that you're touching, those changes will start to generate. A lot of people are doing that with their COVID gardens. There's been a boom in, you know, home gardening these these this year while people are stuck at home. Um, you know, Chris Newman, do you see any prospect in that, that people kind of, is that a, uh, you know, small step toward people and they're getting their ha- hands back on the earth, the soil? Um, yes and no. Um, there's a part of me that, that loves the idea of, uh, like the victory garden concept and kind of restoring a certain sense of food sovereignty. But there's a part of me that doesn't like the idea that we think we might feed ourselves by everybody growing lettuce on their balcony or whatever. I I think it's (laughs) one thing to kind of establish that connection to people that people realize that, yeah, food doesn't grow in the grocery store and that it does come from the ground and that it doesn't come wrapped in plastic and with rubber bands around it with branding on it. Um, but you know, it's such a complicated thing, right? Because how many stories, you know, Amber's probably heard of this people that that have grown up in a projects and I grew up, you know, not in the projects but next to the projects. And I remember people getting their gardens ripped up by HUD because it wasn't a lawn. You know, you plant a garden, you try to feed yourself. No, screw you. They're going to, they're going to rip up your freaking garden, turn it back to lawn because that's what, that's what the regs say. And you can take your food stamps over to the gas station and buy whatever and, and continue with your, your freaking, I don't know, chronic diabetes and everything else. That, that's what the state does. Um, I mean, look, I, I think with, with COVID, what, what isn't so much um, hopeful to me is, is kind of the, the gardening trend and people buying their own chickens, which made it real hard for me, by the way, to source my own chicks when it came time. Um, thanks, everybody. Um, but <laughs> people understanding how fragile and in some ways ridiculous our food system is. Um, you know, everybody probably remembers how there was no meat on the shelves for months, um, when COVID hit and when everybody freaked out and when the restaurant shut down and we realized that we had a supply chain that was so tight and that was so modeled after industrial manufacturing that there was no resilience in that system at all. Um, you, you had meat lines. It's crazy. In the richest country in the world by far, you had people wondering what the heck are we going to eat? I had people panic buying on my website and this is going to happen again. COVID-19 is probably not the last pandemic we're going to see in the short term. You know, we, we've heard from Fauci and from others in the CDC that this could just be the beginning of a wave of pandemics that we are dealing with for the foreseeable future. To mention nothing of, you know, increasing droughts, increasing fire, increasing flood and increasing everything that makes it harder to do agriculture and feed people the way that we traditionally have. Um, so I, I think COVID has been kind of like our, our, our little test of what could come and how money can't save us and we can't eat it. Um, we, we really have to reimagine what food is, how we feed each other and why. 
And a lot of people have taken the COVID example of critique of supply chains at the industrial model and said, you know, small, local, organic. But Chris, you actually say that big isn't always bad. Why? <laughs> yeah, um, it's real easy to beat up on on the bigness of agriculture. And and that's not to say that JBS and Cargill and Tyson and, and, and all of them like deserve a pass. Um, they, they do terrible, terrible things to people. Um, but I would argue that the largeness of agriculture, the scale at which it operates, like the watershed level that, that it operates at, um, is probably the most indigenous thing about it. Um, you know, the whole idea of homesteading was that the United States had all this land west of the Mississippi that it absolutely wanted to conquer and occupy, and it was too big to invade with an army. So what do you do? You take your white immigrant population and you say, hey, look, you go out there and you deal with the wolves and the Comanche and the Sioux and like all these dangerous things that aren't going to exactly appreciate you traipsing on their territory and busting sod and, you know, screwing up their ecosystems. Y'all deal with that. And that whole idea that you'd get your 160 acres like that, that's where the idea of homesteading comes from. It is an idea that is literally born of the violence and dispossession that got us where we are in the first place. Native people manage things as a commons at scale. You know, we the Piscataway managed farmland that ranged all the way from present day Washington, D.C., all the way down to where I am here. It was a huge agricultural system, a gigantic agroforestry system that was so big that people like John Smith or Henry Fleet and other people that saw it firsthand did not realize that they were standing in a food forest. They thought they were standing in the Garden of Eden and had no idea that this thing was absolutely anthropogenic. Um, so bigness is not necessarily bad. It's your motivation for your size. Why are you big? Big agribusiness is big because their margins are so small that in order to reward their shareholders in a way that they won't revolt, they have to tear down the whole Amazon. They have to create CAFOs that can hold like 18,000 head of cattle. Like they, they have to be big to extract profit from the landscape in order to make investors who have no hand in the landscape, the soil or the communities they're supposedly feeding at all. Whereas if you're like our farm and our operation, we want to be big because we want to restore the whole Chesapeake Bay. We want to restore the whole Potomac River, the whole Rappahannock River. And we can't do that from a 40-acre homestead as pretty and romantic as it might be. Um, so, you know, bigness is about your motivation. It's always about your why. It's never about the what. If you're just joining us, um, my guests today are Chris Newman, farmer and co-founder of Sylvanaqua Farms in Virginia, and Amber Tam, farmer and horticulturist based in New York City. Amber, what's your vision for bringing food and farms closest to the people who need it the most, for changing the food system in a hot and crowded world? How do we bring it closest to people who need it most? My vision is for food to be free. I think me being the the third or fourth generation within Brooklyn to not know how to grow food, to not to be on food stamps and be told what you can buy and what you can afford, um, and to not be connected to food. I mean, for the longest time as a child, I never knew that a chicken that was walking was a like the chicken cutlet inside of the styrofoam. Like the disconnect for me was so huge until I entered a realm of diversity of white folks in elementary school. So I think being able to give low-income people, especially low-income brown people, autonomy to try things, to figure out what they like and what they don't like, rather than us to resorting to the bacon, egg, and cheese from the corner store, because that's all we know, is two very different conversations. I also think that people deserve time to understand if they want to grow their own food. And I emphasize this because there is this ideal that farming is so cool and it's so fun and it's so healing when in reality, and I've been trying to do more awareness about this, but production farming is really, really intense and it is not calming or therapeutic. And like Chris was just saying, it is very extractive. And I'm coming out of five months of only being harvest crew where I'm just constantly extracting and not ever being able to give. And that's a very, very exhausting process. So I do think that low-income people deserve to see if growing food as a career is something they want to do for as long as money is relevant, 
or if it's something they just want to do for their family, or if it's something they don't want to do at all. And as Chris mentioned earlier, there is realms that I've been extending to people for my own branding where I need help, which, which is exactly what he said, accounting, which is social media management, all these things where others can play a role for the sake of regenerative BIPOC agriculture. So I think it's much bigger than just being in the dirt and being dirty. There's other ways that people can join in, but those, those other ways have to be shown. I'm just here to facilitate those roles out as I'm learning. I, I'm pretty much like a young Black woman experiment for agriculture <laughs> to see how far I can go. <laughs> and as you look at what we know about climate disruption, and Chris mentioned the heat and the droughts, et cetera, how does climate affect that outlook for you? When I got my farmer certification in Hawaii, and one of the first things that every farmer out there told me, they were like, you need to learn how to surf. And I'll always be like, I don't understand like the connection between me farming and me surfing. And they'd be like, oh, because like climate change is real. And like, there's going to be one big wave that we're all going to ride until our death. Like that's like indigenous Hawaiian thought where there's no fear. They're like, that's the one big wave that we will ride to our death. And then my good brother, Teokas and Ghost Horse, um, he always says, and he's a, uh, he's, from the Sioux Nation, but he always says, you are to become one with whatever's happening, that you don't see a, a you know, weather report as something against you, but you are to become it. So when you see the tornado, you are to become the tornado. It is not something that is outside of you or here to harm you. It is you. And so those are the, those are the lines that I think habitually, all brown people think naturally, but I think I can only talk for black community and say that I for sure can tell you that the fear is more about the cops that are literally outside my window right now more than it is about a tornado coming. And I think there's also the fact that just for people of color, especially for black people, especially for indigenous people, this is not our first glimpse at the end of the world. Um, you know, our, our world ended when when our first visitors showed up on this side of the Atlantic. Our world ended when slave traders showed up in Africa and took us from our homelands and snatched us off the ground. And we were braiding seeds in our hair, just thinking, dear God, what comes next? It ended again when we got plopped down here on these shores. I mean, the, the plantation that I farm at now, the history was that people were bought straight from Africa, put in a pen in front of the Great Oval, in front of the Great House. And their first task was to build the damn mansion. Like that, that, you know, that's the end of the world for them. It was the end of the world when the Homestead Acts were passed and people came en masse across the Mississippi River. And the thing is, for for people who are not people of color, for for Shawanakua, for for white people, like this, this might feel like the end, because I think this may be one of the first ends that they've ever really had to deal with. This may be the end of extractive settler capitalism. This may be the end of a basically five to 600 year old worldview that you can just take, 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 take and never give back. Um, but for us, each of these ends has been a new beginning and they haven't been pleasant. Um, but on the other side, there's always hope. Amber and I aren't supposed to be here doing this. You know, our, the, the, we're, we're just not. Um, you know, we, we are the seeds that our grandparents planted you know, it's, it's the thing that Rowan, Rowan White says, you know, they tried to bury us, but they did not realize we were seeds. Um, so this, it's okay. We're being buried right now. And if we're fortunate and if we're smart and, and, and if we can apply the ingenuity that we've, that we've always applied, well, not always, but, you know, since, um, since our roommate showed up, apply that ingenuity and drive toward solving problems, toward reciprocity, towards indigenizing this landscape and getting away from what got us here, there's nothing but hope on the other end of this tunnel, even though it will be as painful as childbirth. Chris Newman is co-founder of Silvanaqua Farms in Virginia, and Amber Tam is a farmer and horticulturist based in New York City. This is Climate One. Coming up, how approximately 11 million acres of land have been held by and taken from Black Americans. This is almost a classic example of the forces that have been arrayed against African Americans who have strived toward opportunity within our economy in America, who then find themselves singled out for the type of racist abuse and discrimination. That's up next when Climate One continues. 
This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. June and Angela Provost are sugarcane farmers in western Louisiana. Their story is emblematic of how systemic racism has prevented blacks from accumulating land and wealth, a problem that is compounded by climate disruption. Freelance producer Juliana Bradley has their story. The Provost's sugarcane farm was in the family for four generations. In 2015, they were forced off their land after years of delayed and denied crop loans from their bank. Scare tactics like slashed tractor tires and dead animals left on their farm and a refusal to recognize and investigate any of this from the local USDA office. The provost tried their best to continue to farm their land, but the relentless discrimination eventually led to foreclosure on their land and their home. They watched as the same thing happened to other black farmers in the area, all while white farmers thrived. As black citizens, we are constantly bombarded with images of farming as being that of enslavement. If farming wasn't such an important industry for us, then your land wouldn't matter, your access to farm wouldn't matter, and white supremacy would not be trying to take it away from you. Farming to the provosts is more than a livelihood. It's core to who they are. June has been farming his entire life. Everything about farming I love. I always see when you plant something, it's, it's almost like a symbol of hope. Sugarcane, you're going to see in, in two weeks, like it's popping out of the ground. So you, you see like hope there. You see something that you work hard for and it's coming out the ground and it's going to be 12 to 15 feet in a year. The provost's story has been widely shared by the New York Times 1619 podcast. They were most recently featured in President-elect Joe Biden's victory video. June and Angie want to enlighten people about the insidious ways systemic racism and the history of enslavement drive American agriculture and policy. And it's really important to share the story because, I mean, as black farmers, we're less than 2% of all farmers. I mean, if you go from 1920, there was almost a million black farms. Now, today, there's less than 45,000. And out of that 45,000, 17,000 are subject to foreclosure now. If, if this continue on the same path, another five, 10 years, there won't be any black farmers. In the five years since losing their land, the provosts have pursued legal measures against the bank and the USDA office. Lawsuit is still pending. In the next chapter of the provost's story, they want to cultivate opportunities for future generations of black farmers and dismantle and rebuild racist systems that impede black farmers from thriving. Representation matters. And if they can see somebody like me on a tractor, and they might say, well, you know what? I want to be a farmer one day. So we, and we need that. I mean, we need the younger generation to take over. So, I mean, we're excited for what the future holds. That was freelance producer Juliana Bradley. Andrew Carl is professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Virginia and author of The Land Was Ours, How Black Beaches Became White Wealth in the Coastal South. I asked him how representative the story of the Provost family is in the context of what he studies. It's very representative in the sense that, you know, here you have a family who is being singled out for racial discrimination by um, other farmers, as well as um, by um, federal government down through um, you know, lenders and banks. I mean, this is almost a classic example of the forces that have been arrayed against African-Americans who have strived toward opportunity within our economy in America, that um, it is often those who um, do work to advance their own um, um, position and do so often by playing, playing by the rules that were set out by those in power who then find themselves singled out for the type of racist abuse and discrimination. Um, and certainly in particular with, um, with the plight of black farmers um, that have um, seen their numbers decrease dramatically over the course of the 20th century. Um, the, the factors that have um, been aligned against um, this particular family within this particular sector of the agricultural economy is very representative. And as you study the dispossession of African-American landowners and farmers, did you expect climate to be part of that story? 
Yeah, for me, so my work has focused in particular on on coastal areas and and looking at um, the the long history of African American land ownership um, within coastal real estate markets, um, places that um, have become over the course of the twentieth century. Um, highly coveted in places that um, were, were targeted for um, commercial development, um, real estate development. And as a consequence, African-Americans found themselves um, struggling to hold on to land in the face of a predatory speculators um, who would use the law and would use um, the willingness of public officials, um, both at the federal, state, and local level, to look the other way um, when it came, or or to be actively complicit in actions that sought to divest communities um, and and individuals of their property, and do and at the same time, and then this is where you know climate change ties in, is that the very um, objectives of developers in coastal areas have really run contrary to our interest in creating sustainable coastlines in the face of climate change and sea level rise. That, um, you know, at the same time that developers are working to steal black folks' land often, um, they, and in doing so with um, the aid and support of, of public officials who green light development projects in low-lying, flood-prone, and very vulnerable um, areas, um, they're you know, both contributing to racial inequality and contributing to um, environmental instability. And so I think you know, that when, by looking at coastlines, you really begin to see how the struggle for racial justice and um, for environmental sustainability are fundamentally linked. Do some of those developers or officials note the irony of land stolen from Black Americans is now being taken back by rising seas and, and rising storms? Well, I mean, if they were interested in dwelling on you know those questions, perhaps, but oftentimes they're too busy trying to um, realize a profit and trying to um, make a um, healthy return on their investment. And make no mistake, I mean, real estate development in coastal areas, and this in part explains why it continues even as um, we have become well aware of the threats that these areas face. It continues because you can realize your profits so quickly. You don't need to think about what's going to happen 20 years from now or 30 years from now. Um, you've already cashed out at that point. So I think that's really um, an alarming feature of, of real estate markets and development, especially um, in areas that are going to be affected by climate change. I mean, places like, say, South Florida, um, which continues to see booming development along Miami Beach, even as we know that they're facing um, existential threats um, within our lifetimes. Um, developers don't care because they'll have already made their money. They'll have already gotten out. Um, and so I think we need to kind of recognize that um, and seeing what um, what possible you know, changes we can begin to make. And I've heard some people reference banks starting to go from 30-year to 15-year mortgages, partly because that risk out there that they're starting to recognize because the banks don't want to be left with a bunch of uh, a mm -hmm. bad debt. You know, I was in Miami a couple, uh, last year and went to uh, Little Haiti, where there's the Magic City billion dollar approved development and sort of the the origin of climate gentrification. You know, and um, how is climate disruption impacting wealth creation and preservation of black people now? For example, in Little Haiti, some people could cash out and that might be good for them. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, it's, you know, there, there are fundamental dynamics within real estate markets. And I mean, speculation is the sort of name of the game, you know, buy low, sell high. And, you know, finding where places um, where there's you know, potential um, profits to be made because um, property is undervalued. Um, and that's, I think, what we're seeing here in um, climate gentrification is, is really the sort of another wrinkle on the age old story of gentrification, which is very much um, an unremarkable feature of how um, housing and real estate in America works. And so, um, yes, certainly you will see perhaps um, property owners realize um, profits from um, this enhanced value. But what is lost? I mean, communities are being um, displaced. Um, there are things that will not be able to be um, retrieved from um, these communities that have been um, dismantled in the interest of, of profit. And I think history has shown continually 
that um, those displaced by gentrification lose things that can't be recovered. Um, and in particular, um, whatever um, windfall profit they might realize from their property um, being enhanced in value um, pales in comparison to both the long-term community ties that have been torn asunder, as well as um, the other aspects of, of community economies that have been um, also dismantled by gentrification. Right, and I should mention that Little Haiti is up something like eight feet above sea level, and that's it's on the hill where uh, the white people used to um, occupy. Well, still do the the, the desirable beach, low lying land, and the and the the poor people were pushed up to the hill, and now the wealthy white people are saying, "Oh, that hill looks pretty good. We'd like to. That might be a better place to be." And you can see an inversion where the all of a sudden the black people, the poor people, are down on the waterfront where that's more vulnerable, less desirable. Here, this land we stole from you, you can have it back or buy it back. <laughs> yeah. And again, I mean, that's been the story of African-American struggles to acquire and hold on to land um, is that often historically um, black communities formed and um Black land bases began to grow in areas that were seen as marginal or areas that were seen as um, not desirable for, say, white um, property owners and, and white developers or um, or white dominated um, economies, such as in farming. Um, you know, many African-American farmers in the South had um, smaller acreage um, and, and, and more marginal land. And, you know, the story of, say, coastal areas that I write about is um, one in which you know, many of these families who became farmers in these marginal areas in remote parts of the coastal south um, found themselves, you know, after World War II and after the federal government and the Army Corps of Engineers became really invested in um, shoreline protection, um, building infrastructure that allowed for areas um, to become developed on a mass scale and creating the impression that these areas were safe to build on, um, in turn turned African-American communities that had carved out a degree of autonomy and, and carved out communities and really built out um, you know, property holdings, suddenly they find themselves being targeted for displacement because now all of a sudden their land is very valuable and they're seen as disposable. And, and again, as with the case of the provost family and African-American sugar farmers in, in Louisiana, um, when you don't have protection from the state, when the state is oftentimes you know, working actively in the interests of your enemies and those who are in the adversaries who are seeking to remove you, um, from their vantage point, black communities and, and, um, are seen as an obstacle. How has land dispossession forced blacks into redlined neighborhoods that are more vulnerable to heat, floods and other climate impacts? So, you know, the story of, of urban America in the 20th century was this concerted effort, both on the part of federal um, agencies and um, the private real estate industry to um, concentrate um, black populations within um, geographically defined areas um, through redlining and through kind of maintaining the color line and housing markets that would prevent African-Americans from um, having equal access to um, opportunities in suburbs and outside of, of ghetto areas. And as a result, these areas um, suffered from rampant exploitation um, by slumlords, by um, predatory lenders, um, suffered from dilapidation and housing deterioration, and also as well um, lacked the kind of um, civic infrastructure um, and um, develop and the kinds of investment that actually improve quality of life. And actually, in particular, with regards to, say, air quality, with regards to, say, temperatures. I mean, there's you know, numerous studies that are showing how um, you know, these are areas that suffer from um, you know, lack of green space, um, have higher um, um, air levels of air pollution. That's a product of, of this longstanding disinvestment um, and um, exploitation of the dire housing needs of these communities. And it manifests itself also in these environmental conditions. So I think that's, I think, one thing that we um, can again, see as, as a clear example of how the need to address um, racial inequities cannot be separate from the need to address the problems associated with climate change and the environment. So is there any areas where this has been uh, remedied? We have the Community Reinvestment Act, which, you know, forces banks to make certain investments is supposed to address the past problems of redlining. Are there any areas where African-Americans have, you know, changed this narrative of being pushed off of land time after time again and, and frustrating their wealth creation? 
Well, I think it's important, and I think here's where the job of historians like myself um, are critical, is that throughout this history, um, not just today and not just in kind of, you know, in current policy debates, but at every stage of this process, African-Americans had been mobilizing, organizing as communities, as individuals, as property owners, as tenants, um, and, and to fight on their behalf and to call attention to these issues and to call out um, those who discriminated against them or defrauded them or sought to displace um, them. And I think, you know, amplifying those stories, making them a part of the history that we know. I think, you know, one thing that it, I, I resist and when I when I teach and, and write about the history of redlining is, you know, to not just simply create this impression that African-Americans were passive in the face of discrimination or that they um, were unaware of what was happening around them, that this was sort of, you know, that that white actors and white officials and white bankers and were simply doing this um, without any kind of um, resistance on the part of, the, of those communities communities who were they who they were exploiting and victimizing that you know that again telling the stories of families like the provost um, and black farmers who have who have fought tirelessly and heroically um, to hold on to their property and to gain a foothold and preserve their foothold within um, within an economy that has been set up to benefit others at their expense um, telling those stories I think is is so important to both um, not just to kind of fill out the picture, but also to, to, to learn from the wisdom and the insights and the efforts um, that um, average folks and people who have experienced these forms of discrimination, what they've learned from it and what, how they've mobilized against it. So I can't say that, you know, the, I, I, I'm not going to point to a particular sort of um, policy or program that is just, you know, the silver bullet, because I don't think there is one, but there's, um, there's a struggle and the struggle is where we learn the lessons that can help guide us toward a better future. Professor Carl, thanks for coming on Climate One. Well, thank you for having me. Andrew Carl is professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Virginia and author of The Land Was Ours, How Black Beaches Became White Wealth in the Coastal South. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Devin Strolovich edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is the CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. <laughs>